Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, we present a wide-ranging discussion with Congressman Adam Smith. He is chair of the Armed Services Committee, and he joins us to talk about police reform, the use of military equipment on civilian populations, this year's defense budget, the economic recovery, and how we can begin to rebuild post-Trump. We have to build a durable, progressive, democratic majority. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to listen to all of the voices in our party and figure out how we can bring people together and expand that base sufficiently so that we're not back here again. This discussion was recorded live for an online town hall on Saturday, June 20th. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's town hall. I am Stephen Cox. I am the host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. On behalf of Indivisible Eastside, we are very excited today to welcome Congressman Adam Smith. He has served as representative from Washington's 9th Congressional District since 1997. He is currently the chair of the Armed Services Committee and is also a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And we are so glad that he could join us today. Congressman Smith, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the chance. There is obviously so much to talk about. We are hoping that you can weigh in on a panoply of issues, including police reform, racial justice, the COVID recovery. But first, I would just ask you about the Supreme Court's ruling against the Trump administration on DACA. Briefly, can you share your thoughts on that? First of all, the important thing to remember is this this case doesn't necessarily completely solve the problem. Um, All the court said was that the way that Trump um, blocked DACA was inappropriate in a perfectly logical way. Um, you know, the Obama administration said, you know, if you meet these qualifications and you identify yourself, we will give you a pathway to citizenship. So people relied on that. They came out, I think it's roughly 800,000 um, young people in our country came out, identified themselves, and then Trump came in and pulled it away. And the court said basically, um, that was, um, well, detrimental reliance as I dig deep into my brain back into law school here. Um, and you know, that they, that he couldn't do that. There's nothing to prevent Trump at this point from issuing an executive order, canceling president Obama's executive order, which why it remains, it remains critical that we pass legislation, um, to protect uh, the DACA recipients. I also, I feel comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, to protect many more in the undocumented population. But for DACA, we need to pass the bill. Um, we've passed it House, um, and we think Congress should pass it. Well, ideally, with the Senate, the White House, and the House in Democratic control come fall, something permanent uh, can be done. We'll, we'll absolutely hope for that. Uh, I, I do want to talk next about racial justice and police reform in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. And I'll just ask you, from your own personal experience, you've served in Congress since 1997. What do you think it is about this moment that seems to be shifting the conversation in a very real way on racial justice and police reform in this country? Well, it's very hard to say. I mean, I've always said that when it comes to public policy and politics, you need patience and persistence. It is very rare that, you know, a problem comes up. We all acknowledge it. Six months later, it's good. And we can go back to work. It takes a long, steady, slow buildup and a relentlessness to get the type of comprehensive change that you want. And in my head, as I've thought about this, I draw an analogy to gay rights in this country. Back in 1993, when I was in the state Senate, we tried to pass a gay rights bill. Um, And we fell one vote short in the state Senate and didn't get it done. And by the way, all a gay rights bill means is to protect um, gay and lesbian people from discrimination. In Washington State, prior to the passage of this law, um, you could fire someone for being gay. You could say, nope, I'm not selling you my house, you're gay. You were able to discriminate, and then you still can in many states in the country. Um, and that law did not pass, actually, in the state of Washington until 2006. So one vote short in 1993, 13 years later before it passed here. And then you know, we got to the point where now gay marriage is um, the law of the land, um, unchallenged. And I remember back when, you know, Vermont, I think, was the first state that passed um, a same-sex couples law. It wasn't marriage. It was different. And all of that momentum built up until finally it got to the point where, you know, it became accepted. I think the same thing's happening on criminal justice reform. These issues like, you know, the murder of George Floyd have been going on for a long time. But I think that video... Um, and look, if we're being perfectly honest, sometimes when you have, you know, cases of a, of a police shooting... 
it, the story can be on the one hand, but then again on the other. Okay, you you can sort of see both sides. There were no both sides in George Floyd. I mean, it was it was so blatant that these four four police officers, not just one, four thought, no, nope, this is just what you do. And I think it shocked the conscience of people and it exposed them to a whole range of other issues. And the second thing is, demographically, we are changing as a nation. Um, and younger people are stepping up and having a greater impact. And it is more diverse. Um, there are more people of color who are experiencing these things. And there are more people um, who know them. And I think that critical mass has really moved forward. And, and the politics have changed and created this opportunity. Now, um, we have to seize that opportunity, pass meaningful reform. And, and, and legislation aside, systemic racism is the core of this. And systemic racism is not going to be fixed by passing a law. Um, it is going to take a comprehensive approach to understand the roots, the history, how it happened, and all that needs to be changed to eliminate it. That does bring up, I mean, you, you've hit on so many points, um, and certainly we have seen something of an, of an inversion on public opinion when it comes to, say, Black Lives Matter uh, we're also seeing a, a shift in values on defund the police. It hasn't been as profound, but I do want to ask you about hashtag defund the police because it's been interpreted in a number of different ways, but it largely means drawing down and reapportioning police budgets. Is that something that you support? Uh, well, I would not. You know, first of all, as you said, the phrase defund police means totally different things to totally different people. Um, so if I if I say yes or no, then I, I'm not. It's not a question I can answer. Do I? I absolutely support reducing police budgets and systematically reform the way we do law enforcement. And my belief is that's what the bulk of people mean by defund police. Is a change in the way we think of protecting our community. And this is really important because for about 50 years now, and fortunately, I've read. I happen to be watching the uh, the ESPN 30 for 30 on O.J. Simpson, uh, which is fascinating, by the way, because it gets into you know racism in L.A. Uh, law enforcement going back into the 60s, um, and you know so you've got this this overall comprehensive uh, approach that needs to be taken to to law enforcement reform, because for 50 years the policies that have been adopted around law enforcement have been be more aggressive. And this is a well-documented philosophy. It comes out of Kansas City um, originally, um, the idea of aggressive policing. Now, in Kansas City, what they were focused on, they identified the neighborhoods where the most crime was committed. And they said, well, what if we just you know, flooded the zone here and we mat put a lot of officers in, we stopped everybody, we did pretext stops, you know, we educated our officers about, okay, it may not look like anything's going on, but here are the basic clues that can tell you that that person driving that car is probably a drug dealer or a gang member. Um, and they got really aggressive about it. Now, the obvious downside to that approach to policing is that, forgive me, you piss off the community um, because you're not protecting them anymore. You're hassling them constantly. Um, and even if you do wind up catching some bad guys, you also wind up undermining the support that you have in the community. But what happened was, instead of looking at that and going, you know, did this really work, people took it and not only used it in high crime areas, it became sort of the de facto way to police everywhere. It, it wasn't narrowed down. And so policing became much more aggressive. And I think we need to go back and say, does that really work? Does that really make us safer to have that type of over-aggressive approach to policing? And and similarly, there is a mindset in terms of aggression, um, in terms of the physicality of encounter, encounters the police have, the chokeholds, the, the, the billy clubs, the, the tasers, the entire approach of you, you have to be more aggressive in order to get control of the situation up front. And I understand that in doing that, you actually inflame anger. And in many cases, that escalation escalates the violence. So those two core philosophies of law enforcement have been a part of U.S. policy for 50 years, and they need to be changed um, fundamentally. And the final point is accountability. And this, I think, is a huge problem. There is very little accountability for law enforcement officers. I worked on Initiative 940 with Andre Taylor and some others a couple of years ago. It, it starts, well, part of it is you can't convict a police officer of a crime because of qualified immunity and a whole bunch of other things. So we've got to change that. But also the police unions protect their own. 
And this is a problem. I mean, I grew up in a union family. My fa- part of my father's job as, as the treasurer for his local was to protect the people who worked at United Airlines, um, the, the ground crew out, out at uh, SeaTac Airport. And, you know, I, I vividly remember a conversation he had with uh, one of his colleagues about some guy who had a grievance, had an issue, and they were like saying, yeah, this guy's basically a screw up, but we got we to protect his job. All right, he's got a family to feed. That's our job is to protect his job. And that's one thing if you're talking about a ramp serviceman at United Airlines, but if you're talking about someone who's got a gun, who basically has the power to take away people's freedom, there's got to be more accountability. For final point, I know there's other issues to get to, you know, like with this guy who was, was shoved to the ground in Buffalo. If you read the police report, he fell. Okay. Um, we then saw the video that corrected that, but there are reports like that all the time. That the, and there's no accountability for that. I mean, police would lie in their own report about it. No consequences. So accountability. So yes, if defund the police means fundamentally reform law enforcement, I completely agree. So you're being, bringing up two things here that I would like to follow up on. You're, you're certainly accountability. And the other is sort of this this cultural entrenchment of aggression with police. Uh, and I will I'll ask two follow up questions. First, you know, as you mentioned, with accountability, there's been a lot of debate, certainly about the failure of police oversight and accountability at the state and municipal level. And so I'll ask you as a, as, as a congressman, how do you see the federal government's role in enforcing police accountability? We can do a lot of things to incentivize the right approach from the state and local governments. Um, I'm working on an issue that isn't, well, it is kind of connected to it, bail reform, um, which is kind of complicated. But too many people right now are locked up. They haven't even been convicted of anything. Um, They're just, you know, there are a lot of jurisdictions that don't believe in releasing people on their own recognizance. So they'll set a minimum bail, like $1,000. Well, poor people can't pay that. It might as well be a million. So you wind up sitting in jail for three months waiting for your trial, and you lose your job. And well, we want them to change that policy. Well, the federal government passes out a lot of money to local jurisdictions. So we say, you don't get this money if you don't reform that policy. And what we can do is we can identify, here are key things, you know, chokeholds, um, accountability, whatever. And we can say, here are the basic things that you must adopt or we'll cut off your money. I mean, it's how we got our 55-mile-an-hour speed limit back in the day. Um, we couldn't tell the states to do a 55 mile an hour speed limit. We told them you don't get any DOT money if you don't. Right. Because so Congress that, controls the purse strings. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's how we, we can influence the power, I believe. Well, so then the second question, uh, is, is cultural. And this leads us to our first audience question from Glenn, uh, who says police unions stand in the way of true reform and transparency. What can be done to curtail the power that they have in this process? And you mentioned your union background, um, but I wonder if police unions stand alone in this regard, and if so, if you agree with that statement, if there's anything that Congress can do here. Well, I, I'm not sure. Police unions do not stand alone in the following regard. One aspect of unions is they protect, protect their members. And look, within the whole balance of power, the reason I'm so pro-union is typically you're talking about workers who are at the mercy of their employers, you know, corporations, whatever, the business. Um, you know, if you don't have a counterbalance force there to protect workers from unfair firings, unfair treatments, then you protect it. But part of what unions do is they stop people from getting fired, stop people from being punished um, by their employers. They set up rules. Um, and yeah, I could get myself into a real bad argument on education here, which I won't. Um, but I think you see I, that the path that, that we're going down in terms of accountability and unions, because uh, when you talk right. about you know teachers unions or you know, nurses unions, those are about collective bargaining. But it seems to be a culture of, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but uh, protection, cover up among police unions. Is there anything that you can speak to on that? And do you feel that Congress yeah. has any teeth in that regard? Well, what I was leading to was that I, law enforcement is different. Um, in, in a couple of regards, the biggest one of which, um, if, you know, if, if you protect a, a bad teacher or a bad, you know, baggage handler or whatever, I mean, the, the consequences of that are far less than if you pull out, protect a bad police officer to begin with. Um, but, but second of all, um, you know, I think, yes, within law enforcement, um, we, we need to change the, the protections that are there and have a recognition and look. I would hope that law enforcement would look at this and say, this isn't helping us. I mean, we've got a real problem in this country right now. 
the, the disconnect between law enforcement and the community, and it goes both ways. You've seen the stories of, you know, police officers quitting. So they feel like they're not being supported because of the way people have reacted. You know, the, the, the case of Atlanta is, is really a flashpoint for a lot of law enforcement personnel. That's not good. It's not good if police say, hey, you won't, you know, you're not going to protect me. I'm not going to protect you. But I would hope that they would recognize that their lack of accountability is what, what really led to this. And they'd say, okay, yeah. You know, the, the other piece that I was going to get into is sort of the, the accuracy in reporting what has happened. I mean, it's a matter of what, what, is, a, what is a fireable offense. And it depends on the job. Um, you know, you're not really protecting bad teachers or you're protecting people from unfair punishment for mistakes. I think in law enforcement, the punishment for lying in a police report should be much, much higher. I mean, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but if you're, you're trying to hold a teacher accountable, there's one thing if, okay, maybe the lessons aren't great or whatever, but if a teacher smacked a student, yeah, okay, there we should not be protecting them. And I think not telling the truth about what happens out there to protect yourself and your colleagues, they got to change that. As far as what Congress can do about it, I don't know. These are locally negotiated things right now. To begin with, I think we need to put pressure on law enforcement and say, this is in your own best interest to, 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 to see that there is something that needs to be reformed here. Well, one thing that you are doing is the Justice in Policing Act that was introduced yeah. on June 8th. You're a co-sponsor of that. And this, broadly speaking, aims to combat police misconduct, excessive force, racial biasing, uh, racial bias rather in policing. I will ask you, the GOP Senate is drafting its own police reform bill, which many argue is going to be extremely watered down. Uh, McConnell seems to be trying to set up Democrats to not vote for it and then claim that Democrats are somehow against police reform. So given the politics of the situation, what do you think Democrats can realistically get done here? And, and, and I'll ask you personally, what provisions would you go to the mat for? Um, well, I think it has to be substantive. I mean, the big things that I would go to the mat for um, is that these things have teeth. Because from what I've seen in most of the Republican proposals, it's very advisory. Choke holes could be problematic. Please think about not doing them. Um, you know, there, there's, not, there's not teeth in the protections. There, there's no accountability. They, they, they mutter something about um, pretext stops and racial profiling. There's no consequence. What I would go to Matt for the Matt for is consequence. Okay, you know, cut off funds if you show racial profiling, and there's a lot of provisions like that that in our bill. As far as how this plays out, look, we are in an un, unprecedented might be an overstatement, but close to unprecedented time of divided politics in this country. And what the Republicans are doing is they have sold their soul for Donald Trump. And it's interesting, McConnell has finally muttered something about how maybe it would be a good idea to change the military basis. So who knows, maybe on that one issue. But I have not yet seen the Republicans who are willing to do anything that Trump doesn't want to do. And as you know, Trump has no interest in doing anything. So I think it's going to be difficult to get an agreement. And I don't think we should settle for a watered down version. You mentioned uh, McConnell's stance. I believe you're referring to uh, the changing of the names of Confederate soldiers on military bases, correct? Correct. Yes. Well, I do want to shift over and talk about uh, your work in your capacity as chair of the Armed Services Committee. I'd like to talk about some of the ways that the military has been used during the recent protests and uprisings. Um, the New York Times reported on Thursday that the Air Force Inspector General is looking into whether the military improperly used reconnaissance planes to monitor protests in D.C. and Minneapolis. A spokeswoman for the Democrats on the House Armed Services Committee said, quote, lawmakers are aware of these deployments and have requested the department provide us an explanation of the assets used, their mission, who authorized it, and what authorities were used to authorize its use. I will ask you very bluntly, if military planes were used to surveil peaceful protesters, do you condemn this? Oh, absolutely. Um, and we had a very open and public battle. But you know, it's sort of like three sides, the Democrats on the Hill and my committee in particular, putting pressure on DOD to not inappropriately use military assets to deal with um, you know, civil unrest domestically. And then you had where DOD was at, and then you had where the, where the White House was at. Um, Trump was pushing an unconstitutional aggressive response. Many in the Pentagon were trying to not do that while at the same time not directly contradicting the commander in chief. And it was ugly. Um, the chain of command got broken down. I mean, look, 
you saw Trump on television saying that, you know, active duty military should be used to suppress unrest um, in states, even if the governors object. So we pushed back and I had a lot of conversations with both Secretary Esper and Chairman Milley about this. And you saw Milley's apology, apology for participating in the um, um, the photo op at the church. Um, and you saw Esper come out and say, there is no need to use law enforcement. The Insurrection Act should not be used in this case, even as Trump was saying that. So my personal belief is that the Department of Defense should not be involved in this, that the National Guard is controlled by the state. National Guard has been used many times, should be used, and the state should use that. But for DOD to step in um, is a violation of posse comitatus, should not happen. It's a bit more complicated question in D.C., uh, which I won't get into for the moment because I know you have follow-ups. But yeah, this is a big problem. The president's willingness to use the government for his own personal reasons and con contrary to the Constitution, I mean, we're seeing it again today with the firing of a, um, a Department of Justice uh, prosecutor up in New York just because that prosecutor is pursuing people who are friends of Trump's. I mean, that's, I mean... I mean, we're, we're, we're talking slipping into authoritarianism territory here. And it's frightening. And I think a lot of people would like to know uh, at some level your capacity as the head of the Armed Services Committee to prevent, curtail something like Trump using the Insurrection Act. Is there any ability or latitude that you have as chair to prevent something like that? Well, I'm a very practical person, um, and I see a problem. I try to figure out what the best way is to confront said problem, and there are two options in that regard, and I've felt this way for some time. The biggest and most important option is to make 100% certain that we beat him in November and get him out of office, um, and I've been very focused on that. I know there was a lot of this notion, you have to stop him. You have to get him out of office. You have to. You know, we can't wait that long. Yeah. And if someone had presented me with a reasonable plan for how we could get him out of office before January of 2021, I'd have been wide open to it. Um, but there wasn't one. So I didn't want to jeopardize the latter goal, which was achievable, um, in favor of the former goal, which was not. Um, so staying focused on getting him out of office. But then in the meantime, you know, he is president and can do a great deal of damage. How do we contain that? Well, in DOD land, what I've tried to do is cultivate relationships within the Pentagon to try to get them to blunt Trump's momentum, um, to recognize just you know, when he is stepping across the line. And by and large, the Pentagon has been okay on that. And we had Mattis, Shanahan, Esper, different people there. And, and they've tried to prevent Trump from using the Pentagon for his own you know, personal purposes to appeal to them basically to look for any way they can to not. I mean, in Mattis, you know, and I've talked to him about this, but I mean, Trump would get up one day and tell them to do stuff and Mattis would just nod his head and not do it. And counting on the fact that by the end of the day, Trump would be distracted by a thousand different other little insanities and would let it go. Um, so cultivating people within the bureaucracy, not to, you know, come out and say Trump's terrible because then they just get fired, um, but to actually work in furtherance of the constitution of the government in spite of that and to look for ways to block that. I, I think that that's enormously important, but look at the end of the day, you know, what can we do to stop Trump from using the insurrection act? Well, what we could do is we could pass a law that changes the insurrection act, but he'd have to sign it. And he's not going to. And furthermore, the Republicans are not going to stand up to him. Okay, uh, you know, Ad Adam Schiff deserves like the, the the Miracle Worker Award for getting a single Republican to vote against Trump. I mean, because I mean, to have accomplished that it just shows the sheer strength of his argument. Because by and large, not by and large, all Republicans will not stand up to him. They either quit or they bow to him. And the numbers are the numbers. You know, we need Senate Republican to get something passed. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't keep pushing the issue, but in terms of actually enacting it to curb his power, I mean, on the wall, I mean, we tried a bunch of different ways to curb his emergency power. They wouldn't go for it. So he used the law and 
abused the law and got what he wanted. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just everything you describe is just such a sobering situation. And I think it should uh, steal all of our resolve. Uh, Everybody listening, all of you indivisible members, you know what we have to do uh, this fall. Uh, And I think you present the case uh, better than anybody I've heard in quite some time. I also want to ask about the 1033 program. So this sends excess military equipment to municipalities for use by their police forces. People are very concerned about the growing militarization of the police. What is your opinion of the way that you have seen some of this equipment used recently against the uprisings and protests? Well, this ties back into the point we were talking about earlier about the increase increase in aggression in terms of law enforcement's approach um, to, to maximize power, to, as the president said, dominate the battle space. Um, which, as I pointed out, you know, creates a conflict and escalates conflict within localities that isn't necessary. Um, and you know, certainly that's part of it. When you're talking about rolling, you know, tracked vehicles down Main Street to try to contain, you know, a, a protest, um, you're talking about the level of, you know, the weapons that are given to them. Yeah, that that escalates it. Now, I will point out, and what we're going to try to do with the 1033 program is reform it. Most of the equipment that is given out of there is office supplies, computer supplies, basic ammunition, um, and handguns that law enforcement uses. Now, what the Obama administration did is they did an executive order that said, this stuff is okay, the excessive stuff is not. So they limited what could be transferred out of 1033. So we're going to, in the defense bill, which... God willing, um, we are, we will pass out of committee on July second. Um, we're going to put we're going to put the Obama era restrictions on 1033 in place. Um, I'm also going to try to tie bail reform to even the remaining of 1033 programs. So basically, you don't get DOD stuff unless you do bail reform. And it's my understanding that 1033 would be banned under the police in uh, the Justice and Policing Act. It's severely restricted. Um, it's more restricted than what the Obama administration had done. I confess I have not read the ins and outs of it to know what we're, I mean, the difference is the defense bill has got a chance to pass. Okay. It probably will pass. So we've got a chance to include the reforms that we're doing on 1033 into our bill. As we discussed uh, earlier, um, the justice and policing reform bill is going to be more problematic. So, you made a stronger statement on 1033, sure, but it didn't actually go anywhere, which is good, and that's fine. Um, I think you, you want to make clear what, what the goal is, but I think we've got a chance in the defense bill to actually implement a change. You're talking about the defense bill, and by that you mean the NDAA, the National Correct. Defense yeah. Authorization Act, uh, and that authorizes appropriations for the annual budget for the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe the NDAA is the largest discretionary portion of the budget. Yeah, about 55, 56% of the discretionary budget. I believe 2020 was in excess of $700 billion. 738, yeah. Very much, okay. So uh, I have a few questions related to this. And the first is, uh, given the budgetary restrictions that we may be facing due to COVID, do you you anticipate that impacting the NDAA? Um, Not this year. Um, going forward, I think you will see a reduction in the defense budget below what is currently anticipated. The 741, even the 738 number from last year, was the budget agreement that Nancy Pelosi worked out with Steve Mnuchin. By the way, I've joked that if um, we all better pray that Nancy and Mnuchin don't have a falling out, because if they do, the government will cease to function. Um, Mnuchin is about the only guy over there that, that, that will deal with us. Um, but anyway, the budget agreement that they worked out set the discretionary budget, defense and non-defense. Um, 741 was the agreement on one side. I forget what the agreement was on the non-defense. Um, so that was done a year ago. Now, the Republicans are going to come in and try to cut the non-defense, but we're going to push back on that. Um, some Democrats will try to cut the defense portion of that. But for this year, our best chance to get the appropriations bills passed to protect the entire discretionary budget is to accept the numbers that were agreed to in the budget agreement from last year. You, Before I ask this next question, I just have to say uh, what your, your remark about Pelosi and Mnuchin, uh, their relationship being uh, really the key to our functioning government. Uh, if we're relying on Steve Mnuchin, I, I, we're in very bad shape. It's a low bar. Uh, yeah, it is. So, you know, you, you mentioned, that, well, certainly, I just want to under, underscore this, 
you know, this is the largest discretionary portion of the budget, uh, in excess of $700 billion. It seems to me that there is a racial justice component here in that budgets represent our values, right? And I'm wondering if you see an opportunity here, you know, pursuant to our conversation earlier about what can be done, uh, you know, to, to, to really address racial justice in a, in, a, in a very concrete way. Do you see an opportunity here to assert your progressive values with the NDA to, to help communities consistently damaged by systemic racism? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, and let's keep in mind, by the way, that the discretionary budget all in is like $1.1 trillion. The total federal budget is like four and a half. All right. So when we talk about the defense budget being 56% of the discretionary budget, the defense budget is 15% of the overall budget. Um, and that overall budget is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and a whole host of other programs that, that do benefit people. So, you know, I, I think, you know, if you look at it and say, well, our values show that 56% of our money goes to defense, and isn't that wrong? Well, yeah, that would be wrong. Um, 15, 16%, slightly different conversation in terms of how we balance all of that out. But I think that the discussion around defund police goes beyond what we've talked about thus far and focuses on the idea that bringing safety to a community can be better created through funding other programs, um, through supporting education, supporting health care, uh, mental health, a whole housing, a whole bunch of issues that bring security to a community um, that don't have anything to do with law enforcement per se. And I completely agree with that. Now, the part where I start to get in arguments with my own party is we have to make sure that we spend that money wisely. And yes, I, I can hear all the people say, well, we have to do that at DOD too. And I agree. Okay. You know, I mean, we, we have to be more efficient about where we spend money everywhere. But I think the presumption that if we just take, you know, whatever the amount of money is, we take a billion dollars out of defense, throw it into a bunch of social programs, everything gets better, has not been my experience. Um, we, we have to be disciplined about the way we spend this money. We have to make sure we spend it on programs that actually make a difference. Um, and I think if we do that, we will have a much stronger argument in saying, if we cut the defense budget, here's what we're going to spend it on. Here's the mental health programs we're going to fund. Here's the housing programs that we're going to fund. Here's how we're going to make it work. I have one other point on this front, which I'll let go for the moment. Um, but if we if we move that in, into those programs, it's got to be the right programs. It's got to be efficient. I mean, just like spending more money on defense or police doesn't necessarily make you safer, spending more money on education doesn't necessarily make you more educated, depending on how you're spending it. You know, there are so many follow-up questions that I have there. And, you know, the NDAA in and of itself is an enormous topic. And we're actually hoping to have a separate town hall about that uh, this summer. But I would like to shift on and talk about the economic recovery uh, due to COVID. So in May, the Democrats passed a third stimulus bill. This was the $3 trillion HEROES Act. And this includes $500 billion for states, hazard pay for frontline workers, extension of unemployment benefits, protection from evictions, uh, more direct payments. uh, And it would support the Postal Service and has provisions for election security. I, I would love to get your take on each of those, but we simply don't have time. I will ask you this. The GOP Senate has called this a quote-unquote liberal wish list and says that they won't consider it. You've uh, talked extensively now sort of about the uh, the realities of sort of the intransigence in you know with the Republican Party, but I'm wondering, what do you feel the Democrats' move should be next here? Sure, and I think it's crucial. I, I do one final point on the defense budget issue there. I've, I've seen some of the chat stuff coming up. It is also worth noting that just like domestically, if you're looking for security, you don't need to spend all the money on police. Internationally, if you're looking for security, spending all the money on the military doesn't make sense either. And I'm, you know, I'm co-chair of the Caucus for Effective Foreign Assistance. I've done a ton of work on foreign aid. I'm a huge believer in diplomacy and foreign aid. And I'm a huge believer that in our national security budget, way too much of that goes to the military and not enough of it goes to foreign aid and diplomacy that could actually get us to a safer and more secure place. And I will aggressively advocate for that. And I believe that my position on the Armed Services Committee, I don't know where all the bodies are buried. Nobody does. Um, But I know where more of them are buried than your average liberal Democrat, um, because I know how the Pentagon functions and I know what they're talking about. And I put the work in. I'm in a position to make those changes and we'll do that. As far as the next steps, you know, what is absolutely clear right now is that our economy is is going to be in trouble for quite a while, no matter what happens, even if the coronavirus and 
Trump's, you know, wishful thinking magically disappears, um, it's not going to, but um, we need help. We need another stimulus package. Even conservative economists, everyone I've read says, if the economy is going to get going again, we need another stimulus package. And one of the big parts of it, which was a trillion dollars of our bill, is support for local and state governments. Um, you know, we also have provisions in there. Gosh, even such a small thing as I've been working with, uh, well, T-Mobile's in my district, so I work with them. And you know, they have this forgiveness program right now that if you don't pay your phone bill, they're not going to cut off your service. Well, that expires at like the end of June. So there's about a $4 billion program in our budget that helps support people to enable them to pay their phone bill because of how important it is. And there are issue after issue after issue like that, you know, rent support. Um, you know, I spoke with a bunch of apartment managers the other day and getting rent support is incredibly important to help people go forward. That's what the Republicans are talking about when they describe it as, quote, a liberal wish list. Our liberal wish list is to make sure that people don't become homeless and collapse the economy. Um, and that is what we ought to do. I think our step right now is to put massive pressure on McConnell and Trump to say, so you, you don't care if the economy collapses. You don't like our bill? Okay, well, let's see what you've got. Oh, you've got this, nothing. Right. All right, it's been three weeks. You've done nothing. So your solution is that nothing needs to be done. It's all good. Everyone's back to work. Everything's fine, right? No. So I think we got to pressure them and say, give us something. And when we go into negotiations, I think we need to push a very hard bargain because the country needs this help and the country is with us on this issue. And I don't think we should, and basically all the Republicans have said is that we need liability protection, you know? And yeah, I mean, there's an argument about that in terms of how you're going to handle businesses as they bring people back to work. And But really, that's all you've got? I think we should beat the crap out of them over the fact that on the economy, on the coronavirus, on racial justice, on the issues that everybody in this country knows are a problem. Okay, you don't necessarily like our solutions, but what the Republicans are saying is, nothing to see here, no problem, it's all fine. I think we should just jam that down their throat um, as aggressively and, you know, as we can. You, you know, what you're alluding to is something that I just find mind bending is that, you know, when you poll, you find that by and large, the majority of Americans have progressive values. And yet you know, here we are in the minority having to fight for these things that most people want. So in any event, as opposed to going through the laundry list, I would just be curious to know if you think that there are specific things in the HEROES Act that the Democrats should absolutely stand firm on no matter what. Um, state and local government support, number one. Um, number two is the support for public health, um, which includes you know support for our, our hospitals. And there's a big $7.6 billion bill in there to support community health care clinics. So support for state and local governments, support for public health, um, and then individual support for people who have been laid off. I think those, those three things we should absolutely stand on. I, I do want to address the issue of what you said, because you, know, you asked, asked the question, so if the country agrees with us, how come we haven't won elections more? Now, part of it is- Well, actually, that wasn't my power. question. It was more of an observation that it's, it's really puzzling that we would have to push as hard as we are as Democrats on a lot of, of these issues, given that the country wants it. There are reasons for that. Um, and reasons for why Donald Trump showed up. And I think, you know, I would, and it's, it's an open discussion. I, I don't presume at this point to know exactly, well, gosh, if we just did it this way, then the country would be with us and we'd never lose another election. But I do think that when I look at why people um, don't vote for Democrats across the country, and I represent a district that voted for Hillary Clinton 75%. So, you know, we're in one place. But if we're actually going to win and govern, we got to win, and, and I've got 14 freshmen on my committee. 12 of them are in swing districts. So I'm very familiar with, you know, Alyssa Slotkin and Jared Golden up in Maine and all these different places. They got to win there. And what's the message that troubles them? And I think part of it is, you know, where is the personal responsibility and accountability in a democratic message? I think we need to seriously look at our message and say, how can we take advantage of the progressive positives? and then bring in a broader group of people. And again, I don't presume to have the answer, but I think we need to have that conversation so we can go out and win those districts. You know, I'd like to backtrack just a step and get your take on an audience question. Brian asks about protecting voting rights nationwide this November. He asks, in particular, are you willing to hold up the next COVID bill to ensure that it includes funding for vote by mail and to protect the Postal Service? 
Well, if, I, if I'm being perfectly honest, um, no. Um, I think both of those things are crucially important. All right. Um, and I would advocate for them and push them and try to get them as much as possible. But if you're telling me that the Republicans come back with a COVID bill that's got everything that we asked for in it, um, the post office is a tougher question because, uh, you know, because, you know, I, I, I'm not sure uh, because I, the post office needs help. There is no question about it. And it could very well go away. Uh, but do I do I not offer all that other help so that we get nothing? If we can't get the electoral support, it's not that those things aren't important. Um, and I will push as hard as possible to make sure that they're included. But do we hold up the very necessary economic support for people who are headed towards homelessness, who have lost their jobs, whose businesses are going other under cities and states facing bankruptcy? Do we hold up all of that and say we're not going to do it because the Republicans won't go with us on, on the election reform? That's a tough question. Um, it would depend on the negotiation and how it played out. We are just about out of time. I hope that you have time for a few audience questions. There, there are a few that yes. I'd like to get to. Uh, and one is about the firing of Captain Brett Crozier. Uh, Michelle asks, I'd like to hear about your upcoming hearings on the Navy's final ouster of Crozier from Command of the Roosevelt. Captain Brett Crozier, of course, was the commander of the Roosevelt and sent an email asking for help responding to a, a COVID outbreak uh, aboard the ship. He was then fired. He was then reinstated. And then he was fired again. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. Actually, he wasn't actually ever reinstated. Um, I know that the um, the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, recommended that he be reinstated, but the civilians who ultimately have the authority did not do it. And I think that's wrong. I talked to the current Secretary of the Navy um, and the current CNO um, just yesterday, a couple days ago, I forget when, um, yesterday, um, about this. And you know, their argument is he should not have been fired for sending that email. And that is their, their, their finding, that that was a mistake. Um, but they've done the analysis and they think that both he and the strike group commander, and there's a complicated chain of command here, that they did not respond quickly enough to protect the, the shipmates, you know, in terms of getting them to port, getting them off the ship, quarantining them. They saw decisions in there that made them think that they should not put him back in charge. I, I disagree with that. I mean, I see what they said and certainly mistakes were made. But the mistakes that were made, to my mind, were most profoundly made by the civilian leadership at DOD. Acting Secretary Modley and the Secretary, as Secretary of the Navy, he's the one who screwed this up. Now, he's been fired, which is good. Um, and I think the new guy coming in, Braithwaite, he's got a chance to be better. I don't think that the chain of command deserved to be fired. I think that the breakdown happened on the civilian side, and I disagree with the decision that they, that they made to not give Crozier back his command. Stephen has a question about Trump officials who have been discussing resumption of nuclear testing. What are your plans for opposing nuclear weapons testing by the United States? He asks. It is our plan to put a provision in the bill to, you know, disallow any funding whatsoever to resume live testing of nuclear weapons. It's a dangerous and unnecessary escalation. Okay. Uh, Philip wants to know, do you support any of the current congressional bills for a U.S. constitutional amendment addressing campaign finance reform? Yeah, I support several of them. It's been a while since I've actually looked at them. Ted Deutsch was, he had one of the ones, um, you know, basically overturning Citizens United. I believe that we should make it clear in the Constitution that, that money is not speech and, and corporations are not people. And when you look at the explosion of money, a lot of people focus on, you know, individual donations to candidates. The huge problem is independent expenditures. They are completely unaccountable. We don't know who is putting the money in, and it's unlimited. And that is what Citizens United just basically blew the doors open and said, spend it all. Um, so, yes, I support that. Speaking of campaign contributions, uh, and this comes from M, per the Center for Responsive Politics, you take campaign contributions from Amazon. Why, uh, even though it is common knowledge that they oppose workers' rights? Yeah, you know, my approach to fundraising is an area where we, we disagree. Um, I believe very strongly in campaign finance reform, and I believe in the caps that, that are present. The most money that I can take from Amazon is 5000 primary, 5000 general, $10,000. The most money we can get from an individual is 2800 I think those caps are enormously important. People should not be able to you know, write you a $2 million check. 
I never make a decision based on who gives me money. I raise money within the law, within the campaign financing law, and I tell all of these people, and not all of them understand this, by the way. There are a number that give me money and then call me up and expect that because they gave me money that I should do what they ask. I do not do that. Um, and I would submit to you that no matter where an individual gets his money from, um, they should have that principle and that rule. Um, and I frequently lose donors. You know, I make decisions that they don't like and they don't donate. Um, I voted against the B-2 bomber when I first got elected to Congress, and Northrop didn't give me money for the better part of a decade. Um, so the answer to that question is, these are the rules. I raise the money and I make the decisions based on what's in the best interest of my district and the best interest of the country. I will also say, and I wrote an op-ed criticizing Amazon um, a month ago for precisely the issue that was raised. Um, they weren't happy about that, but say lobby. Um, I think we need to work with people to get them to change. Um, now there's a ceiling. I don't take money from tobacco companies, not that they would ever give it to me, but we got nothing to work on. Um, I think if we're going to bring about the fundamental change and an issue we have not touched on directly yet. Um, and when we look at these protests, why do we have all these people out there? You talked about, you know, what made this sort of critical mass and part of it was the racial injustice, the things we talked about, but part of it goes beyond anything to do with systemic racism. It gets to the fundamental fact that too many people in this country right now feel that the system is unfair, that it has been rigged, that people at the top are disproportionately rewarded, your average worker is getting screwed, not getting his fair share. And that's kind of what I talked about in my editorial. I mean, it's great that Amazon pays 16 bucks an hour to people down at the fulfillment center in Kent. You're going to have a hard time getting a place to live on 16 bucks an hour in Kent. And I, and I said it to him, I said, why not 25? Okay, that your head of Amazon Web Services made $25 million last year. I know him. He's a good guy. Does a good job. We work together in a lot of things. I think he could survive on five. I do. Um, and, you know, that concentration has made people feel like this isn't fair. You don't tell me to play by the rules. I can play by the rules all day long. And where do I get? Okay. It didn't used to be that way. And I think we need to make that fundamental change. And I'll keep putting pressure on Amazon and a whole lot of other people. I just don't think that declaring war on corporate America and saying, screw you, you're evil, we will fight to the death, is the path towards actually helping the people that we want to help. So, you know, that's, that's my more incremental approach, which I know some people disagree with, but that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I thank you for that. And I will just, uh, we just have time for one last question. And I like to end on a, uh, an up note if possible here. So I will ask you, if Biden wins the presidency, if the Democrats take the Senate and keep the House, how would you begin to undo the damage of a Trump presidency? What would you like to do in those first two years? Gosh, that's a very, it's a big question. question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the biggest areas to undo the damage is to rebuild the, the federal bureaucracy. Um, and I think, you know, working with the Biden administration, when you look at, I mean, certainly you see what's happened to the Justice Department, you see what's happened to the Intel um, community, but it goes deeper than that. You know, EPA, transportation, they have, you know, driven out so many competent people. In some cases, just left the positions open. In other cases, you know, put in, well, for lack of a better way to put it, fools um, who are only there to support the president rebuild that bureaucracy. Give us the government that's going to go out there and serve people in, in, in a fundamental way. But the second thing that I would say is if we're really going to undo what Trump has done, we have to build a durable alternative. Okay, We have to build a durable, progressive, democratic majority. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to listen to all of the voices in our party and figure out how we can bring people together and expand that base sufficiently so that we're not back here again. And, and many of you on this call have heard me give this little speech before, so I apologize for those of you who have heard it. But I've been in politics for 30 years now, and only twice during those 30 years has our party controlled the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. Once when I was state senator, 93-94, and once when I was in Congress in 2009-2010 under President Obama. And on both occasions, we formed a circular firing squad and did not stop until the Republicans had far more power uh, afterwards than they did before. The first time, it gave us Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution. The second time, it gave us the Tea Party and Donald Trump. I don't want to see what comes next. So we've got to find some way 
to bring our very diverse coalition together enough so that we can govern and then get elected again. And that's the biggest thing that I'm going to work on, because I understand why. I mean, we get elected and all kinds of people like, well, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. What's the point? Democrats are no better than Republicans. In some cases, I, I think those are legitimate points. But I want to have that dialogue and build people together so that we have a durable, progressive majority going forward, not just a one time, you know, forgive me, show that winds up with everybody being upset. We're all pointing at each other and the Republicans come marching back into power. I will just ask a, a rather naive question to close on. Are you optimistic that we can do that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> that's funny. I do. As, as we passed the defense bill last year, it was an epic battle. Uh, but, you know, I mean, and then during the battle, I'll tell the story. I kept telling the, the, the reporters, you know, because Jim Inhofe and I had a hard time getting along. And then I had to work with the Trump White House and all manner of different things. We got, and I kept saying I'm optimistic. And they said, well, I said, what makes you optimistic? <laughs> And it's just my general disposition, and I go all the way back to my 1990 campaign. In June of 1990, um, they did a poll in the district that I was running in, and I was behind my incumbent Republican opponent, 61 to 12, in June. And I won. So how can you not be optimistic? There's always a way. You know, if you just stay focused and work on it, and as I've also taken to saying, I, I have an outsized amount of confidence in my ability to persuade other people of things. Um, that is frequently proven to be overconfident, but I've maintained that confidence. And I'll tell you, if you listen to people and you respect people, you can get much farther than you would ever realize. Um, We may not agree, but it's not hard to still listen and respect people, you know, to not just, ah, you're an idiot. You know, yeah, you don't agree with me. So no, listen, respect people, work together, build a coalition. I've encountered way too many good people um, to be pessimistic about how, how that'll turn out. Well, I think those are great words to leave it on. Uh, Congressman Adam Smith, we went a little bit over, but thank you so much for your time, sir. I appreciate your great work. Thanks for the chance. A huge thank you to Kat Pipkin and everyone with Indivisible Eastside and an above and beyond thank you to Chris Franco. You always come through, brother. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, June 23rd for a town hall with Washington Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Reichdahl. You can find more information at the Washington State Indivisible Podcast community on Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.